Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's program... Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be bringing you the latest from Tokyo 2020. Thanks very much for that, Fiona. We'll also be getting the news and views from our panellists today here in Zurich, Christoph Munger and also Rob Cox. And over in London, we have Simon Brook. What's caught your eye, though, first here in Zurich, Rob? Well, the rain, of course. It hasn't stopped. Does it end, does it? But it is, of course, Happy Rootley Day, which I guess is the the Confederation of Switzerland was founded in 1291 by three cantons that came together in some meadow called Rootley. Now, of course, you know I've only been here for like a year and a half, and in the first year, a year ago, nothing happened. Everything was closed. So I'm only now catching up with Swiss history. Fireworks today? I hope so. They say they're going to come out tonight at 10 o'clock or something like that, but we're going to have to watch the rain. Absolutely. Also, a little bit later, we're going to be heading to Berlin to talk to Zeit Magazine's Christoph Amit. It's the 1st of August, 2021, live from Zurich and London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. Good morning from an absolutely drenched Zurich. Yes, this is Tyler Brule. I am very happy to say that it's a bit of a yeah, tale of two cities uh, today as well. Of course, we've got Emma Nelson back in London. Simon Brooke is also uh, there, who's one of our panelists. I'm also happy to say that Rob Cox is here. You heard him at the intro of the program. And also, uh, Christoph Munger is here. He runs the Foreign Desk at the Tagesanzeiger. I should, of course, say that, of course, Rob is in charge of uh, Reuters Breaking Views. Uh, Christoph, good morning. Very nice, uh, good to, morning. See nice uh, to see you. Good morning. Nice to see you. Welcome back. You've uh, been doing, re- sounds like a bit of a grand tour of, of Spain. Yes, that's great. Yeah, you were saying you're not really a Spain expert. Would you say you're a little bit more informed having toured <laughs> the country for two, three weeks? Yeah, I have to admit it was really a great gap in my education. Spain, I, I don't speak the, the language, unfortunately. However, we, we made a great trip with the family. We toured with, with, with our old 18-year-old uh, Volvo through, through Spain. and was I'm, great feeling a, I'm feeling a commercial coming on <laughs> there. Like, <laughs> you would, and one would expect that you could do this in an 18 year old Volvo. So. <laughs> yes, we didn't have any problems. Uh, it was great and we, we made the, the big tour all around the whole peninsula and uh, from north to the south to Tarifa near Gibraltar then up to the north to the northern coast which is completely different which reminded us of on, on Scotland and even Switzerland because there are so many cows. And uh, But but it, it was also Beside that, we, we heard in the news that the fourth wave uh, is coming, but uh, we were quite relaxed because we had our vaccines. Yeah, and your Volvo as well. You're always safe with the Volvo. Uh, Rob, <laughs> Rob, good morning again. Good morning. Nice, nice to see you. Uh, you. You've been doing a bit of a, a, a shuttle, uh, as we know, back and forth. Yeah. Uh, it, a little Italian, a little uh, Svizzera. Uh, and you're heading off again. Yeah, I know. In a week, I'll be going to near Verona and then heading to uh, Greece, where you, you spend a fair amount of time recently and uh yeah hoping to avoid the fourth uh wave in all these places but they are they are they sort of we are now looking at this pandemic of the unvaccinated which is really kind of a fascinating maybe we can discuss that yes. but it's it is really it is sort of become this bifurcated world where those who the vaccines and those without are suffering and it's uh it's quite shocking uh, and, i mean when, when i was when we were in spain this this question of the unvaccinated they, they, it's not discussed there everybody wants to get vaccinated because they had this experience of this very hard lockdowns and actually when we were in valencia i saw a queue in front of these great galtrava buildings a queue of at least one and 
between one and two kilometers. Mm. I couldn't imagine, but everybody was waiting for the vaccination. Well, let's uh, we'll, we'll come back to this uh, topic because it is worth unpacking. You know, how has it really plateaued? And unless we sort of drag people, uh, and and there's going to be in, you know, enforcement measures, where are we going to get? But I want to bring in uh, Simon Brook, who's also in London. Simon, good morning. Good morning. Uh, maybe listen. I mean, everyone else has been sharing their their holiday uh, stories, and Emma was teasing us, you know, before we went on air as well, saying she's off somewhere. Uh, how does Simon's summer look? My summer looks probably quite rainy, I'm afraid, uh, Tyler, I have to say. I'm going to Wales. I'm also going to Bristol rather weirdly. I don't know quite how this has happened, but somehow my partner and I have worked out some strange sort of royal tour through the West Country in Wales. And we're having a few days in Bristol and and a few days in the Pembrokeshire coast in Wales. So it'll be beautiful. It'll be windswept, but it'll probably be rainy as well. So uh, I'm, I'm just going with low expectations and hoping for the best. Well, let's uh, just uh, maybe start uh, very, very briefly before we head to Tokyo, because our Fiona Wilson uh, is also standing by there. But before that, let, let's just get this uh, vaccination story out of the way. And maybe, Simon, I saw something in this, mor- uh, this morning's paper. It seems that the Sunday Times is leading, uh, of course, uh, with, with the Chancellor, uh, Mr. Sunak, saying that come this Thursday, or if not before then, uh, that the UK really needs to to open up. And he talks on one side about, of course, yes, let people get out on holiday, uh, but also let's open the country. And, and finally, and you would expect this, but it's taken a while, he, he really talks about the city and he talks about business and why the UK needs to open up for business. And he really talks about, of course, yeah, the rest of the continent probably scoring points at this point because things are much more open. Um, just maybe your impression on that and how, how, how you think this is going to play out. Will people listen to him? Yeah, well, I think um, Rishi Sunak has huge political capital here in the UK that the Chancellor of the Exchequer is seen to, to have done a very good job in a cabinet that many people would say doesn't have an awful lot of talent in it. Uh, Sunak certainly seems to be a, a very bright star. And I think this debate here is something that's obviously happening around the world, that you get the people who are more concerned about business, uh, about opening up on the one hand, and those who are more sort of concerned about the, the health uh, aspect, you know, con- really controlling the virus, doing everything that's possible to really beat it down to almost nothing on the other and that seems to be Boris Johnson. It's quite often difficult to understand where the British Prime Minister stands on on the, the virus and business because he does seem to facilitate a little bit but um, certainly Sunak is leading uh, as you say this uh, this rally rallying call from business, from a large number of people, especially Conservative voters again um, for a sort of opening up because one of the things we've seen and again I think this is uh, the same around the world is this division between general those on the right, very pro-enterprise, who want to see an opening up, and those who perhaps on the left, um, perhaps who who work in in uh, the public sector quite often, um, who are a little bit more concerned about it. But certainly, I think there will be a lot of Conservative MPs who are very much wishing uh, Rishi uh, the very best of luck with his uh, campaign. Rob, how close uh, will the business community be watching this? I mean, from a, a London and UK incorporated point of view, because of course we've had the Prime Minister talking about this global Britain, but it's not feeling very global at the moment. Uh, and, and of course, everyone is looking at the measures, of course, to open up uh, Britain. The UK is very much at, at the lead, well, say England is very much at the forefront in, in, on, in many ways at the moment in a domestic context, but from yeah. a global point of view, not really. No, I think they have lost a trick to other capitals, for sure. The city of London, I, I'm speaking about. I mean, this week, I think Tuesday, those who have been vaccinated in the EU or the US will be allowed to go to the UK without having to 
quarantine for five days. You still, but it's still not made easy. You still have to do a PCR test, test all this kind of. And, yeah. So I was going to go Tuesday, like seven a.m. flight. This would be the first time I'd been back to the UK, where, UK where I have forty percent of my staff. Um, and then my folks were like, "Look, you have to do this." We still haven't got the protocols for the office. You do you really want to get on the Jubilee line to go to Canary Wharf? There's all these kinds of questions that haven't been resolved. And actually, I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to see it firsthand. Lots of people are just not back in the office compared to say New York City or Paris or. Absolutely. And it, it, it is, you know, even being in, I was in Milan on Friday, and it was incredible to see how many, on a very sort of hot, muggy day, how many people were in jackets and ties. And it really felt that, you know, Italy at lunchtime, it could have Back. felt like September two years ago. Exactly. Um, just, uh, Christopher, uh, I want to bring you uh, in on this. We were, we were just chatting, you know, before all of this, which is, of course, it seems that we're at a point where, you know, our people in, in one country is at 47% are fully vaccinated. It might be 55, it might be 50. There is this sort of shared level now as other countries have have caught up. You were joking that there was a, you know, a Bratwurst incentive program uh, that had sort of, you know, people uh, running to to potentially get vaccinated. That was in Germany. Yeah, Yeah, surprisingly. Mm. Um, (laughs) Do we we move to a place where there needs to be a little bit more coercion now? Uh, How how do you see this playing out? Because you've got the Australians saying they're not going to open up to international travel until 80% of the country is vaccinated. And mm. and as we see, there is this rather sort of significant hump that you need to get over at this 50, 60 percent point. I mean, I mean we, as, as Bob also mentioned before, it's now we have the pandemic of the unvaccinated. I mean, the US president said it quite explicitly last week and uh, the same problem we have here in Switzerland. And people start thinking, how do you bring all these people uh, into the centers to, 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 get, to get them vaccinated? And there's a few cantons and, uh, among them uh, Turgau, uh, where, where I you, uh, originally come from, they have started with so-called walk-in vaccination centers. And it's quite a success. People, there are a lot of people, uh, particular, but in particular young people, they prefer to get vaccinated without registration, without this and that, without all the bureaucratic uh, uh, problems. Do you just come in, you have your identity card, you get the first shot and the date for the second. So that was quite a success. Maybe that's, that's a recipe. Then there is the Swiss radio pioneer Roger Shavinsky, you, I'm sure you know very well. Uh, he started this lottery on his Radio One show. There are ma- many other things. I, I've read in Russia you can get cars and flats if you get vaccinated. I think we're past, <laughs> I think we're past the carrots, though. That's mm. the point. I think yeah. you know we now in some countries we are definitely still have this moment. There's enough people that may still be incentivized to do things. But I think mm. we've gone. Past, we're in many places. The you UK, don't want to flatten US, Moscow, is that what you're saying? No, I don't want to flatten Moscow, uh, but I want I want to see eighty. 90% vaccination sure. rates and I want to see young people getting vaccinated and I want to you know and, and I think you you get to a certain point where and Italy and France are doing this I think more than other folks which is saying look you want to eat in a restaurant inside show me your green pass you want to get make life miserable for people who aren't vaccinated I'm completely in line with that that is not necessarily coercion it's compelling them it's giving them reasons to go out and do it without actually forcing them to do it but it, it, it you know it's like first and second class uh, citizens yeah, basically travel wise sort of an indirect pressure and I mean yeah. the Swiss president uh, gave an interview in Sonntagsblick uh, today on National Day and he thought about uh, making the tests that the people have to pay for the tests uh, you 
if you if you have today, it's, it's right. Make it's it, for you free, have to yeah? pay rather than five pay. free a month, yeah, which be, gives you a reason not to do it. You can just go and get your test and not bother with a vaccination. I think sure, that's a sure. Great idea. And if you have to vaccination, you have to don't care anymore about about, about tests. Mm. I mean, yesterday yesterday evening I went to a football football match, uh, second league in Switzerland, and uh, you had just had to show your COVID uh, certificate and you entered. I mean, and the other people uh, they stayed out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Simon, just uh, before we head to Tokyo, uh, if we look at uh, also the numbers in in the UK, because of course there's there's a big focus you know, every day on how many are, have been vaccinated uh, and where that sort of double vaccination number stands. Uh, but uh, what, what are you hearing um, in in the press, and maybe uh, more importantly, just anecdotally uh, about you know how how much of a, a real hardened anti-vax, uh, yeah, I would say force or, or just constituency is there in the UK? Well, there's a, a small but very vociferous um, uh, sort of anti-vax campaign, if you like. We saw uh, here in, in London uh, a few days ago um, uh, a group, um, very uh, extreme, if you like. Um, there's, a, there's a former nurse actually called um, uh, Kate Shemarani who has spoken and said some really deeply offensive things about uh, doctors and nurses comparing them to people um, being convicted at the Nuremberg trials uh, and so, but but that's a very small, uh, very as I say, very sort of extreme view. And I think it's probably putting a lot of people off. The big questions in the UK have been around race. Uh, it's well known that the BME community has not uh, been taking up vaccinations as much as uh, others uh, have. So questions about why that is, cultural differences, and things. And then obviously big questions as well as we sort of you know the vaccination wave, if you like, moves down the the demographic towards younger people. Um, real real interest here in in the extent to which those younger people who we need to get out there doing things like working in bars and nightclubs uh, amongst other things you know they're, they're going to be the ones in positions where they're going to be vulnerable to to getting the virus um, so there was a question of jabs for jobs as it was called the mm. idea being that uh, uh, people would be would not be allowed to work basically unless they had a jab so um, you know it's still the, the general consensus is I think in in, in the, the UK that we need to get jabs and certainly anecdotally speaking to family and friends and others, people who've had the jab, both jabs, feel very good about it. But um, still there is that debate about uh, to what extent uh, you, 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 know, you target those groups, those demographics that uh, are still largely unvaccinated. Mm. It's uh, just uh, gone 10, uh, 10 18 uh, here in Zurich. It's uh, 17, 18, 5, 18 over in Tokyo. Our Fiona Wilson uh, is there, of course, our, our bureau chief, our Asia editor. And our Olympics editor as well. It's amazing, Fiona, that we've uh, we've made it through almost 19 minutes of this program. We haven't talked about the Olympics yet. I can't believe it. It's the big event. I mean, it's so hot here today. I have to say, I feel very, very sorry for uh, any athletes. And I, I don't know if you saw any of the action uh, yesterday, but it was it was brutally hot. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of talk about the heat, the Olympics, and coronavirus in Tokyo at the moment. Mm, I mean, it's of course, it seems that uh, yeah, if you look at any major international outlets, uh, many are, of course, talking about the numbers and it's not the number of medals, but of course, it, it is it is the number of, of cases. But let's not focus on that. Let's focus uh, on, on the games. Uh, amazing. Sweden's finally got a medal. I was looking the other day that I mean, how could it be that you know, a, a country that you think of sort of great sportsmen, maybe more in winter than, than in summer. And I was like looking for, you know, the, the blue and yellow uh, flag. It wasn't it wasn't there. Uh, and, and now I've 
I've, I can see, I think it's, it's, it's put in an appearance uh, finally. Um, and of course, you know, no surprise uh, in terms of countries that are doing well. But I guess where I wanted to start, Fiona, Japan, uh, you know, maybe home, uh, home team uh, advantage, uh, of course, outstanding athletes, but has, uh, has put in a very good show. How is that? Has that changed the national mood? You wrote something about this the other day. It, it's, you know, you, you can maybe hear whoops and cheers from, from home, but how does it also play out in the Japanese media, maybe in something like the Asahi Shimbun, which has been very anti-games? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's been a little bit up and down. Absolute delight at the success. Um, I was at the Budokan, which is the some legendary uh, martial arts uh, venue, which was used for the 64 Olympics. I was there. I saw a Japanese uh, man winning a gold medal. And it's absolutely just such a sort of intense sport to watch. And, you know, these Japanese uh, judoka, um, it's an amazing team. And I think that really, really raised the, I don't know, morale's been low here. Obviously, as you know, all the sort of negative feeling about the Olympics. It has helped. And it slightly distracted everyone from the numbers, but it's, it's getting harder to do that. And then, of course, Prime Minister Suga has now had to extend the state of emergency to the 31st of August and to the surrounding prefectures and Osaka, Okinawa as well. So, you know, it, there are sort of parallel worlds that they keep talking about, but it's very difficult not to connect the two. I know the IOC doesn't want people to connect the two, but uh, the, the absolute uh, sort of increase in numbers has been quite spectacular. So, um, I think, yeah, definitely support for Team Japan. I was at the stadium last night. I saw the, the Swedes getting gold and silver in the discus. Um, <laughs> I was thrilled to see they were playing ABBA when they won. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a good atmosphere around the stadium. A lot of people were there, but heartbreakingly, you know, photographing the stadium through a fence. And, you know, you feel very, very uncomfortable being in the privileged position of going to see these events um, and the people, I mean, I am one of them, the taxpayers who paid for this are being shot out. So it's a very, very mixed picture, but 100% support for Team Japan. But Fiona, what is the narrative like? Because on one side, of course, you have the the, the Japanese Olympic organizers uh, and and the IOC of talking about the, these bubbles and, and everyone is quite contained. It's one of the reasons why you know, I didn't come over to see you because I didn't want to be you know, locked up in a bus going between venue and 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 hotel. Uh, so if if things are that tight, and I I read something that uh, some athletes have, you know, it's not not the first round who've been also booted out of the country as well because they decided to go on a bit of a sightseeing tour, etc. So if if it is indeed you know that lockdown, and you talk about a parallel universe, is just is this just the case of a wave that's happening, you know, with or without the Olympics? I think the reality of the bubble, I mean, yes, people are trying to stick to the rules. Absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, you've heard about yeah, people being booted out. But, you know, there's a certain sort of reality to what's going on, which is a lot of people who are not coming from elsewhere, but who live in Japan are moving in and out of this bubble every day volunteers, people who live here, it's very, very difficult to make it a sort of hermetically sealed bubble. It's, it, it's proving impossible. I think they're being very good about the testing. There's a lot of confusion around the post 14 day rules. What do people do if they stayed here for 14 days? Does that mean they're fully quarantined and they can go all over the city? And that's a little bit fuzzy. Um, and I think that probably needs sharpening up because a lot of people feel that after 14 days, they can go to, um, you know, every shop, restaurant, bar they want to. And it seems that's not the case. Now, I think, you know, given that I've read the rule book cover to cover and I even I can't quite work out what the rule is, I think that needs to be cleared up. But um, I think it's it, it would be very difficult not to connect uh, the incredible movement of people around Tokyo with the with the numbers we're seeing in infections.
And if you, I guess, uh, turn on uh, the television and, of course, you're, you're watching uh, the coverage. Actually, I should ask, what coverage are you watching? Are you watching NHK or are you, are you watching international feeds from other broadcasters? I mean, I, I'm so fickle. I'm completely disloyal. I'm flicking between channels depending on what I'm watching. I, t- I find that if I want to watch, you know, uh, British athletes, yeah, I'm going to the BBC. I'm, I'm hitting up the VPN. But, uh, you know, if you're following Japan, you know, NHK has got, six six channels covering in depth so i'm really moving around uh, the channels there's a lot of good coverage and you know i've actually been to see a lot of events live i've been really really lucky and it's very interesting to see these incredible athletes at close quarters in empty venues i mean it's it's a very surreal experience and i was i was watching uh, novak djokovic playing the other day and you know that the, the sort of a few very light applause around the arena. You know, he must. That would be, be you because you're not a fan, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I was rather hoping that Kane Shikori was going to come out the better of uh, of the battle. Um, he got absolutely trounced. It has to be said. But um, yeah, it, it's it's been. I think it's quite tough for the athletes, but they're trying to get the atmosphere going. And you know, if you go to the swimming, there are an awful lot of teams in the venue cheering for their own athletes. So it's not devoid of atmosphere. But uh, it is quite strange that I went to the 100 metres, the women's final last night in, on the athletics uh, track and, you know, front row seat, no problem, empty. You know, and that's that's a very unique experience. I could sit by the finish line and see uh, see it all happen. So I felt very lucky and, yeah, a little bit sad that so many people who love sport can't get to see it at close quarters. I have a question for you. I, one of the things I keep watching is this medal count. I don't know. This is like this. This maybe this is American to me. Like there's this argument about like gold medals or total medals. I was I was arguing with some people yesterday, saying, "Oh no, it only matters gold. Doesn't matter. You know, bronze is. You know, you just showed up. What? How is there? Is there any sort of geopolitical tension? I mean, what do you see there? I mean, because I'll I'll turn on and my my emails are filled with like the latest from Simone Biles and Suni Lee and the gymnastics and and then if I talk to my Italian friends, they're saying, oh, we almost won the archery against the Turks. You know, there's this, I mean, how much of it is like, when if you're there, what is the big story? Like, what is the big competitive dynamic? Do you know, it does bring out the nationalist in many people. I'm amazed at how thrilled people I know, quite sensible people are suddenly absolutely thrilled that, you know, their team has won a, a fencing gold. And I think, honestly, the golds do matter. And, and the headlines here have been about Japan winning so many golds. It surpassed its record for gold medals at an Olympics. And that was, you know, a huge story. And I do feel the tension between the US and China 100%. That is a, a gold medal, medal battle. And, you know, obviously people are thinking, OK, you've got track and field coming up. You've got to fancy uh, the US more there. But I, I feel, you know, from actually when you're watching it and I, you know, I was watching the judo and I watched the judo, a, a women's final, you know, the woman who won bronze was so ecstatic. And I thought, isn't it interesting? You, you know, in the coverage of the day, really, it's going to be the gold medal performance we see. But but there's an incredible um, relief, I think, for some people who've done far better than they expected and they got bronze. So I but I think the headlines are all about the gold and geopolitically. Absolutely. You know, and everyone's seeing China doing uh, very, very well. So I think, you know, uh, it, it's interesting to see how we all kind of um, fall back into our nationality when it comes to the Olympics. Mm. Uh, Fiona, Rob brought up Simone Biles. Is, is the Simone Biles story making 
headlines in in Japan because you know on one side you know if you look at the BBC right now it's the fourth news story I mean it, it's it's extraordinary that this is you know that there's not let's say uh, you know certainly uh, pointing in other directions other competitions etc this is the this is the fourth news story does it play out uh, in in Japan uh, the same way that it does seemingly in the English language press yeah, I mean, absolutely it did. And I was actually there that night when she pulled out. I was watching, um, I was in that beautiful um, Ariake Gymnastics Centre. And it was quite confusing if you were there, what was going on? Because she appeared, then she went off, you know, the tracksuit came on. We didn't really know what had happened. But one thing I did notice was you just see the attention, you know, in this huge arena and there are many, many gymnasts and it, it's a team competition. So they're all doing different events at the same moment the cameras are trained on her and you really felt that the sort of intensity of the pressure. And I think also because Naomi Osaka, you know, what had happened to her, she, she didn't pull out, but she had a very, very uh, under par final game where she was knocked out and she really looked, you know, her body language suggested she was not really enjoying herself. Um, So that, that discussion about mental health has, has really had a lot of play here in Japan and, you know, it doesn't always, but um, yeah, definitely those two are, you know, two of the biggest names, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka in, in women's sport anyway, and um, to have them both here, you know, so yeah, there's a huge focus of attention on them. Uh, just before before we go, uh, as as we sort of look to to what's uh, ahead, and it's interesting you were talking about uh, that this state of emergency certainly uh, for for Tokyo and other regions will apply uh, till the end of of August. What does that mean, though? If um and you know if I'm in Fukuoka or if I'm somewhere else in the country, um that is that is not under this uh, state of emergency. Have we seen a lot of people leave Tokyo right now as well because they want to just be able to to go out and 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 sing till three o'clock in the morning somewhere else in the country? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Prime Minister Suga has got a big problem on his hands. He keeps extending these states of emergency. And what I'm seeing around Tokyo is that people are a bit fed up. They're not paying that much attention anymore. They're moving around the country, um, you know, and people are not supposed to be coming to Tokyo or going out of Tokyo in theory or any of the uh, prefectures with states of emergency. And I feel that people are really going about their business as normal. Uh, It's very difficult. We've had a whole we've had months extended states of emergency really to keep these numbers down for the Olympics. And I think the population's just fed up and it's actually not that effective. So he's Suga is strangling the economy, but he's also not really um, getting to the heart of the um, COVID problem. So I think he's got a lot of work on his hands. And, you know, he's got a, you know, a political game that will be playing out very shortly after the Olympics, you know, with um, leadership election and elect general election coming up. So looking ahead to that, he's he's in very, very tricky waters, I would say. Fiona Wilson, uh, our Bureau Chief Asia Editor, and of course, uh, our Chief Olympics Correspondent in Tokyo. Thanks for that. I'm sure we'll be talking uh, next Sunday. Emma Nelson is back in London with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Three major cities in Afghanistan have become the scene of fierce fighting between the Taliban and government forces. Turkey's Coast Guard is helping to evacuate tourists from hotels in the Aegean town of Bodrum as wildfires move towards a tourist resort. More than 200,000 demonstrators marched in cities and towns across France yesterday in protest at plans to make it a legal requirement for some people to be vaccinated. And the former head of the Swiss Tourist Board has said that the country is missing a trick by not promoting wolves. He says near nature tourism is a huge opportunity and according to the Targus Anzeiger he suggests that wolves shouldn't be hunted but admired on safari. And those are the headlines. Back to you in Zurich, Tyler.
I'm, I'm having trouble putting uh, my headphones on with my pith helmet because I want to get on that wolf safari. Now, this is interesting because speaking of wildlife, I was getting on uh, jumping from train to tram on the way to the uh, to the studio. And there was uh, quite a large poster on the platform uh, to, to go to Arosa to see bears. Um, so you can go and, and see bears around Arosa. Um, so if that's of interest, because you did sort of tease us before we went on, on air, you're heading off on holiday. Emma, where are you going? Um, I'm going to the sunshine. I'm going to Mallorca. I'm going to Palma. Oh, very nice. Very nice. So I was extremely uh, interested to hear a little bit earlier on about where I can actually get hold of an 18-year-old Volvo, because frankly, that would get me there. But you'll be very excited. Christoph, exci- can you help, can you help can- Emma on, on this one? <laughs> can we get or ma- ma- maybe, maybe yours is like, you know, it's, it's dormant maybe for a few weeks. It's not going to Spain. You could have left it there for her. Uh, yes, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> could you ship it out, please? We're there this yeah. afternoon. It won't take yeah. too long. I'm sure it'll be super easy. It's a V70. We have really lots of space in there for lots of luggage, I, <laughs> which I is have- an Advantage and a disadvantage. I have owned one of those, so yes, it's it's a huge point. And actually, Tyler, you'll be light, de- be delighted to know that among the extreme excitement they're experiencing in the in the Nelson household this morning, I mean, I bet you you cannot imagine how excited we all are to be actually getting on an aeroplane. It is unbelievable. Um, my son did ask if we could have a hire car, and if it could be a Fiat Panda. Well, I mean, there's a boy with, with, with good taste and not very much luggage. Uh, just At least this puts an end, listeners, uh, to you having to play airplane in your living room, of course, Emma. We did that on Tuesday, actually. We departed from Abu Dhabi and landed in Auckland about 45 minutes later, having had a nice chicken dinner and a glass of wine. Oh, it's, that's amazing. It's going. Supersonic travel is, is indeed is indeed back. But I think it is it is good. I actually I do believe you know aside from people being able to to get of course their vaccine uh, passports and, and certificates, I think that there also needs to be a series of tests that people need to take before they venture out into into the world again. Uh, I, I touched on this in my column today. Mm. It's a little bit like you know forget about safaris. I mean the beasts are are really out of the cages uh, when you go to a lot of places. This this sort of extension of yeah, how do I live at home? Well, I'm in. I'm in, a, I'm in a public space. I'll just sort of behave as if I'm on my sofa, even though I'm surrounded by two or 300 other people. So I think, Emma, that there should be you know, sort of maybe five basic tests that people need to also sign up to. So when they actually sort of, you know, leave the bubble, they, they're leaving home for the first time, they remember what it's like to be out in civil society. If they could probably wear decent clothes, that would be nice. Um, or just any clothes. What clothes? Well, I don't clothes know. Where, are off, that's a concept as well. Because ro- ro- a sweatpants ban. <laughs> a ban on sweatpants. Yeah, a sweat, um, ban on sweatpants and a ban on, on really high-cut denim shorts because it, it's it's becoming a, a Depends bit, who's wearing them. Well, maybe it depends who's wearing them. I would say most of the time, probably not, though. But anyway. That's... People perhaps who shouldn't be wearing high-cut no. uh, trousers. Um, I'm a big, I'm not a big fan of speakers in places. No, that's good. Yes. Um, very good. And I'm really not a, 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 a fan of the impromptu pedicure either on the aeroplane, which has once happened to me, uh, but also by the poolside. That's not oh, something I'm a, I'm a fan of. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone wants any sort of uh, toenail filings uh, yeah, in there for extra crunchiness in their salad. Uh, Emma, we'll catch up with you before we, uh, we go. Uh, it is uh, just gone uh, 10.34 here in London. We're heading away for a short break. When we come back, uh, we're off to Berlin. Marriott Bonvoy is proud to partner Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. As the global industry leader, Marriott is ready to respond to its customers' needs whether they're traveling around the world or staying closer to home. As the world opens up, this commitment to its customers is more important than ever. Bart Buring is the Chief Sales and Marketing Officer at Marriott International Asia Pacific. Here's Bart with more about the trends he's seeing. 
and why there is now more demand for premium hospitality and experiences. I think the world is ready to travel again. We're seeing it in Europe, in America, and also in China, obviously. People want to travel. People want to explore the world. They want to obtain interesting, enriching experiences. And what is wonderful to see is that it's the younger generation that is leading the charge in terms of travel. We're seeing a lot of younger travelers that are a little bit more adventurous exploring the world first. I think wellness and well-being is something that has really come to the forefront of many people's thinking. And that sort of translates into behaviors when people are contemplating travel. And I think we have seen particular demand for resort destinations. We have seen much more demand for spas. One of the things that we're also seeing is this trend of people not having been able to travel for a while. And when they actually decide to travel, they really want to spoil themselves and experience aspects of luxury that they may not have contemplated if they traveled a lot. So wellness, well-being, travel for luxury, all go hand in hand as people contemplate finally being able to travel again. Bart Buring, Chief Sales and Marketing Officer at Marriott International Asia Pacific. Discover more compelling and enriching experiences across 30 distinct brands with Marriott Bonvoy at Marriott.com. Marriott Bonvoy, proud partner of Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Blay. Just gone 10.37 here in Zurich. I believe it's also 10.37. Also in Berlin, we're uh, heading up there now uh, because uh, Christoph Amend is standing by, editorial director at Zeit Magazine. Guten Morgen. Guten Morgen, sir. Yes, it is. Same it is. time over it here is. in Berlin. Still, it is. Still, that, that's yeah, good. This, yeah. is, this is good to know. Uh, how are we? Should we do a, a high summer check-in? Uh, has, has summer, did summer ever arrive uh, in Berlin? Because uh, we've seen maybe sunshine, at least in this part of Switzerland, maybe four or five days. You said we've really had these amazing summer evenings, and that's, that's it. Um, but I'm not sure. Uh, may, I know a little bit further north in Europe, you had a very good July, but I'm not sure if that extended all the way to Berlin. Yeah, as, uh, it, in Berlin we had like the the, the nicest uh, summer. I mean, we also had rain, but but it was quite quite hot here. It's still quite warm. Um, uh, yeah, compared to the southern part of Germany, which is strange in a way. Um, so yeah, people enjoyed going out to the lakes and uh, enjoying the sort of free summer. Uh, as long as as everything is kind of opened and uh, and f- feels kind of, of free again. Let's see how long that stays with us. Now, I want to ask uh, the editorial director of, of course, one of uh, the best newspaper supplements uh, in in Europe, if not the world. Do you feel a certain sort of pressure, or do you apply a certain sort of uh, pressure, of course, uh, to the uh, to the editor of uh, of Zeit Magazine uh, at this time of year? That supplements, that a newspaper supplement, of course, you come out on a Thursday. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the paper, of course, this is uh, a title which really you know, should last you through the weekend, the the whole week. Um, do you do a, a bit of a pitch change uh, at this time of year when it comes to the types of reads uh, that you, that you have on offer in your pages? Well, not really. I mean, we, we, I mean, because we're we're sort of working on sort of more timeless pieces in the magazine and sort of a long-running, in-depth research. So, um, I mean, we're trying to 
have a summer feel with it, but um, not really sort of focusing totally on 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 the season. Um, so this this week uh, we have a cover story. We're starting a new format which we call Unter uns entre nous, you know, between us, where we will invite um, a group of of uh, Germans with um, similar roots uh, to talk about their identity and and, and their culture. And uh, the first uh, uh, episode of of that conversation uh, series that we're going to be running is a conversation with uh, five Germans who have Turkish roots, and um, and have yeah have them chat with, about their identity, um, and and you know have us learning about uh, the identity, um, and and it was it was quite a fascinating read. I mean, they talk about the founders of BioNTech, who of course are the sort of German Turkish couple. Um, who, you know, as you know, invented uh, one of the vaccinations, and um, and how they reacted to the fact that those were, uh, you know, Turkish Germans, uh, and some of them were sort of uh, they were all euphoric about it, but then they kind of were kind of careful and and, and reacted quite late uh, publicly, um, embracing them because they also feared that if something would go wrong with that vaccination, then they would be blamed again. So it was kind of a Really, it's sort of really in-depth in and interesting uh, read to find out about their generation, about their their um, identity, and and we'll we'll continue that uh, throughout the following months. And this will touch on on various various communities, uh, always always around ethnic lines or or also other identities as well. Yeah, I mean ethnic uh, lines or other identities. I mean, it's, it's going to be like I'm, I'm not going into details, giving away all the things. But <laughs> yeah, so different different identities. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and and tell us just. I mean, of course, uh, the 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 German Turkish uh, story is always an interesting one. Where where does the conversation end up? Because obviously, I, I hate to say it, uh, but not everyone is going to be able to to get Zeit Magazine for our listeners. Uh, you know, who, uh, who who might be in Honolulu or or, or somewhere else. Uh, so where. Is there a sentiment? Uh, does the you know this this collective conversation does it end up in a in a in a place of of pride that these people have a, feel like they have a unique identity as being uh, Turks in Germany that they have that they've that there's of course you know now generations at, at stake here um, does does it end on a, on a certain note? Yes, I mean there I think it, they they come to the conclusion that it, they have an enriching identity and that they are enriching. The German identity. I mean, Germany has always been a country of, of you know, people people coming into the country with their ba- different backgrounds and changing the culture of the country. And I think the German culture has changed in the last decades uh, uh, so much and was enriched by uh, people, uh, you know, also from Turkey. Um, and and so it's. Uh, I think they're they're you know they 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 are part of the German identity and and German identity has been changed. And you know, enriched. I mean, yeah, in, on on all levels. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a it's sort of a, a we're ending on a high note on this, um, not ignoring the problems, but uh, yeah, you know, embracing uh, the new German culture. Mm. Uh, we were talking to, of course, our other guests at the start of the show. We're doing a bit of a of a spin around the table, uh, talking to people about where they're going. We've had uh, Wales. We've got uh, uh, Christoph here in studio, just back from Spain. Uh, has Herr Amund had a holiday yet? 
he hasn't had holidays because he's uh, he's busy editing the new food magazine, the first issue of Zeitmagazin Wochenmarkt, which will be published on September the seventh. So we're like sending it, uh, sending the pages to the printer in about two weeks' time, and then we're also um, finishing our uh, next international issue, which will come uh, up a little bit later, but we'll finish. Uh, the issue at the until the end of August. So I'm, and I also started a new podcast, a weekly podcast, a weekend podcast uh, called "Und was machst du am Wochenende?" What are you up for the weekend? That I'm hosting um, uh, with a fabulous writer, uh, Ilona Hartmann. So we have a guest every week, talking about their weekend plans and how they spend the weekends. And so I was quite busy, and I'm still quite busy until the end of August, and then I uh, I will head over to Ibiza. Okay, and then will I be seeing you in Milan as well? Because I imagine you have to be bringing copies of, uh, of course, uh, Zeit Magazine Wochenmarkt uh, to Salone del Mobile, because I did hear that there's going to be a Barbasso party on, on the Tuesday of Salone, if, if I got my dates right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, I'll see you at Barbasso, um, and, um, uh, and I'm really looking forward uh, to the Salone and, and see how the Salone is doing in September. Um, and uh, you know to to meet all the people that we haven't been mm. able uh, to meet and uh, i was in vienna actually uh, 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 a couple of days ago and i was at um italian bar there at uh, campari bar and they introduced me to a drink that i'd never uh, never heard about and i'm really looking forward to barbasso because as you know barbasso invented the the spagliato the negroni spagliato some some years ago um and it's it's it's, it's the drink is called a beer americano a beer americano, so um, okay. Yes, so it's an americano, um, americano, but with a with some beer foam on the top of it. Uh, sounds a bit strange, but uh, it's uh, it was it's a fabulous drink. So I'm look, uh, looking forward to try that. Okay, so you, you've actually you've actually sampled this in Vienna. <laughs> yes, I think the maybe the Viennese bar people at Campari Bar have invented it. Uh, I'd never seen it before, but it was really great. So I'm really looking uh, forward to the Salona and our little uh, um, evening at Barbasso. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Excellent. Uh, Christoph Amund, uh, <laughs> listen, have a great time in Ibiza before that. Uh, you've got lots to get out the door and on the airwaves, it sounds like. Uh, but we will definitely see you uh, in uh, in Milan uh, at the Salone. That was Christoph Amund, editorial director of Zeit Magazine in Berlin. Uh, Rob, you were just, uh, have, you were smiling there. It, you were laughing, meaning that, that you're also uh, already a fan of this particular beverage? Well, I, I actually had something called the Beer Americano, and I thought it was going to be a beer, but it tasted a bit like something with Campari in it. And I had it in Milan a couple weeks ago. And I, and I, I you know, I, when you want a beer, you don't really want a Campari. When you want a Campari, you don't really want a beer. So I, I have to say I was quite conflicted by it. Okay. And is, is, this, is this coming in a long glass? I think we need some more details here. Strangely, it came in a can. So oh. someone gave me a can. It said beer Americano. It was a small can. So and I and I drank it. It came from that Italy, you know that place. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and and I said, all right, this is not a beer. No. Oh, okay. It was I, the night of the when Italy won, so it was uh, so there was a lot of fest festivities and didn't really matter what you were drinking. I, Simon, uh, back in back in London, uh, I, I, I can't see your facial expression, but it, <laughs> are, are, are you potentially perplexed by, by by this? I think I am. Yeah, I think I was intrigued. I I, I think I totally agree, Rob. There's a there's a time when you really want a beer, isn't there? There's a time when you really want a sort of cocktail or something, but I'm not sure you want both together. I do remember once talking to somebody whose favourite drink was red wine and orange juice. 
And I said, why would you ever drink anything so disgusting? And I have to say, this was back in my student days. And he said, well, the great thing is you put that on the table and you know that nobody else is going to steal it because it's so disgusting. And yet it still had the desired effect amongst students of getting him drunk very quickly. Even though he got, so, got a shot of vitamin C as well, I suppose, which might be a good thing. I'm quite selling so, this, aren't I? Yeah, you yeah, absolutely. I, I think I've got my colleagues running up to the bar behind uh, the studio <laughs> wall here fixing us some as Mine's we speak. Mine's uh, tell me, uh, just uh, what else is making uh, news uh, in the pages if you uh, scan the Sundays, uh, Simon, uh, today? What, what else is uh, really headline, at least would be talking points as we move into the week? Well, lots, of course, on coronavirus and where we are at the moment. Quite an interesting piece I saw um, by Ben Spencer, who's the science correspondent of the Sunday Times. You know, we're all wondering when this hell is going to end, aren't we? And I suppose also wondering to what extent, <clears throat> uh, you know, we just get used to living with it or whatever. So he's got a piece uh, during uh, which he's in interviewed for which he's interviewed Paul Hunter who is a professor of health protection at the University of East Anglia here in the UK and uh, he says uh, I suspect we won't this is Paul Hunter I suspect we won't get a major surge of new variants which is great news or something people who continuously warn about new variants are I think mistaken which is brilliant Um, and uh, Professor Hunter goes on to explain that uh, in the first year increased transmissibility is important but then apparently there's what's uh, what he describes as a maximum fit between the virus and the human body that can be achieved. And once you've got to that maximum fit, um, the, there's really less likelihood that we're getting new variants or, or that uh, that they will slow dramatically anyway. So we do seem to be, despite the, the alphas and the, where are we, the betas and the deltas or whatever we're at, we do seem to be, according to Professor Hunter anyway, reaching that uh, maximum fit and uh, uh, and Ben Spencer's piece in the Sunday Times concludes with perhaps the Delta variant will be as bad as it gets. If so, whisper it, the worst of the pandemic may soon be behind us after all. So uh, anyway, I just really, really hope there's so much, uh, so many conflicting views from scientists, aren't there? But I really hope that Paul Hunter is, is right on that one. Uh, Christoph Munger uh, from Tagus Anzeiger, what, uh, what's caught your eye? We were obviously talking a little bit, of course, we, st- we started on a corona topic, but uh, anything else in the press that, that you've seen today? Yeah, I came across uh, a quite interesting story about the Swiss Secret Service, the intelligence, Swiss intelligence, and uh, it's in a way, of course, linked to corona because uh, the members of the Swiss uh, Secret Service, they would like to stay uh, more at home and doing home office. And of course, that's a, a big problem because they have to work with very uh, confidential data and so uh, now they have the discussions how they could handle this problem uh, they, they they think of um, block some information sets so you can take them can catch uh, uh, can take these informations uh, for example in the train or at home however uh, of course we talk here about the the secret service uh, analysts not about field agents but still i think it's quite amazing that uh, these uh, employees of the Swiss intelligence want to stay at home with this quite sensible data. I mean, Rob, it's a bit of an issue, isn't it? That I mean, that, that they're even discussing it, that it's in the public domain. You would think, could you please keep this behind the walls if you want to <laughs> You want to work from home? Maybe sort of rule, rule one would be uh, you know, not, not getting into the pages of the national press. It's like Fight Club, right? The first rule of Fight Club is that you don't talk about Fight Club. I mean, I, th- I think you would think like the security forces, the last thing they 
did want to tell you is actually we were, we're like, I don't know, smart working, working from home. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. It doesn't give you a lot of confidence. Yeah, of course. It wasn't an official, official statement. They, the colleagues found a study and it was mentioned in there. It's a report. And so they came across the story. Rob, I just, uh, I'm interested uh, from Reuters breaking views perspective. Uh, are you sort of running a little bit of a, a, a track or even if it's uh, sort of, again, behind your own wall as to as to where you've seen how the world's moving? You've been back and forth across from the States, as you said. Yeah, there's still almost too many hurdles to go to London to make it that attractive at the moment. I mean, you're sitting uh, here and we know that Switzerland's been very open. And, and, and as you said as well, I mean, actually, surprisingly, Italy's had a tough time, but Italy is very, very open. Um, and And so... Yeah. How, how do you see the world moving? And then you've got Fiona saying, like, we don't know. I mean, after the Olympics, I mean, we've, you know, we've got Suga saying that, you know, we're going to have emergency measures on, you know, in Japan till the end of August. Uh, so does that mean, you know, will Japan even be open and mobilized by the end of 2021? Well, I've got people in Melbourne. I've got people in Hong Kong. I've got people in other parts of Asia, Mumbai, and then Europe and then the States. You know, it does feel to me as if Asia is just so there's such a there has been such a lack of urgency in the vaccinations and there is this, this this idea, like you mentioned it before, that the Australians are going to wait until there's an 80 percent you know, uh, <laughs> vaccination rate before they open the doors. And this is almost impossible to imagine. And and, and so I, I, have, I just basically have decided I'm not going to be in Asia until, I don't know, 2022 at best. Um, and I guess to, to, your, to your point, one of the things that I'm most focused on and I think about this is just people. I mean, people are still struggling. They're still feeling isolated, even though they are starting to mingle a bit more. We're still, I, I just find my job as editor in chief so much as sort of therapist in chief still mm-hmm. talking to people, just saying, look, hang in there. We're going to get back to the office together, people, because it's tough, you know, collaborating and all those kinds of things that you get out of being in an office together has been, uh, has been missing. And you can see it in lots of, lots of industries where there's, uh, where people are there's this great resignation idea where you have many, many people just not going back to work or quitting. You have many more jobs in the U.S. Um, than than are people applying for them, uh, and I, I just sort of feel like this may this may be kind of the thing, the lingering feeling out of this this crisis um, that really changes the way we view work. Simon, it's um, Rob raises an interesting point because we're looking to government uh, on on so many levels, of course, for direction. Of course, they are the ones, uh, they are the lawmakers, uh, and they, of course, are opening and 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 of course, uh, the ones imposing restrictions. But I, someone the other day said, you know, maybe it's also when you think about the city of London, for example, it's also down to to the building managers, the building owners, uh, that there maybe needs to be more of also just a, a private sector lead on this as to why. You know why not just buildings are safe uh, because you know it's, I think we can probably generally agree on the fact that this whole surface issue thing is uh, is probably not quite uh, as as severe as everyone thought. But if we think about getting into lifts, going into high towers, all of these things, do you think that also the private sector needs to be having a bit of a stronger voice, not just sort of looking to to interest groups uh, if we're going to have a more buoyant last quarter of of twenty twenty one and also a very confident twenty twenty two. Yeah, well, I think um, the government here in the UK, like a lot of governments, I think around the world, is very keen actually for people to get back to work and companies are 
as well. Um, you know, I'm thinking of um, Jamie Dimon, um, you know, saying that uh, that he thinks that working from home just doesn't work. It's not good for culture. Um, Sheryl Sandberg, I know, said a similar sort of thing, actually. Um, and there's a real feeling here, I think, and, and as I say, in other countries around the world, that uh, that, that employers, employers, uh, companies are keen for people to come back. You know, they want to have people in the office around them. But actually, the workers are really quite happy being at home. I mean, who wants to commute? Um, who wants to have that, uh, you know, business of, uh, you know, having to sit in an office with other people, as you say? I don't think so much a risk from what I'm hearing and what's being reported in the papers, certainly the business press, it's not so much a sort of fear about infection. It's just the fact that people do like to work from home. Um, and so uh, when I've written about this subject, interviewing company leaders and managers and stuff, they've been saying, yes, we're, we're, we're doing hybrid working. We're doing everything we can um, to try and sort of make it work. But certainly there is a feeling, I think, of, uh, you know, many people actually quite enjoy working from home. And so we're going to have to see how we go. And Rob, I was interested in your comment about being chief therapist. That's the other thing that uh, uh, CEOs and managers are saying to me that uh, one of their big concerns actually is, is the psychological element. You know, how do you keep that team spirit? How do you stop people feeling depressed sitting at home in those four walls or whatever and uh, getting cabin fever? So I think we're slowly feeling our way, but certainly the government is is trying to encourage people to get out and get into offices and, uh, you know, and get back to something a bit more similar to the pre-pandemic uh, style of working. How do you do it, Rob? Tell the world. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, there's no playbook for this, right? Like previous plagues, we weren't all office workers or, you know, information economy workers, right? So there isn't there isn't really a playbook for it. Maybe that's the maybe that's what we need to write is the sort of here's how to motivate a staff while in, during a plague because <laughs> we may have a few of these coming along in the next century. The problem is I'm not sure that the, I, I'm just keeping it together. I don't really know. Like a year from now, if I mean, people might just say, all right, the hell with it. I'm going off to Montana and I'm going to go and live and write my this. And it's still it's still an open question. Mm. Christoph, you weren't in Spain looking at how you could run your foreign desk from there, were you? <laughs> I took my vacation there. But uh, however, I mean, I prefer to stay in the office. I, I'm much more efficient in the office. And uh, but of course, I've, in my team, I've also people, they, they prefer to work at home from the home office. It's more comfortable. You don't have to commute, as, uh, as he said. But the problem is... Uh, the, the interaction is missing and uh, so at least I, I say twice a day we have to make these video calls although I don't like them but uh, it's a little little way to to get to, to keep into touch otherwise people drift away and you don't see we do it. that but you get that Hollywood squares feel where there's like eight people on a call and you, you know it's it's a little it almost it becomes a, too repetitive it becomes mm -hmm. a little monotonous I think that's yeah, yeah. it's not funny anymore is, as no, at the beginning yeah. exactly <laughs> um, Emma Nelson just want to bring you in before before we go did you find of Volvo V70 that's uh, 18 years or older before before you head off today? Not, not quite in Palmer, but um, <laughs> there will be extensive searches on the internet to try and find this uh, elusive, wonderful car. I can just imagine me rattling around the, the, the streets of London infuriating every climate change and and um and congestion charge uh, you know a passionato I, I i suspect i may be doing myself no social good but boy oh boy it sounds like so much fun the, pro the problem is mine is 
a little bit bruised around. Uh, of course, they have to be. I have to admit. Yeah, <laughs> they, need, they, they need to have. They need to have a few war scars. Emma, very quickly, first yes. thing you're going to be doing. This is your moment of freedom. Uh, second, you <laughs> land and, and your poolside. What, what's happening? Oh, what, what's, a, what's the beverage? Uh, oh well, there's a gin and tonic on the plane, and then I suspect there's a vermouth, unless there's something else. It, it would basically be the first thing that arrives in my hand that's that's decent. But um, but yeah, no, and it's it, it's almost seems like a dream at the moment. I I'm being cast back. To those days when I was really small and I woke up at six o'clock in the morning beside myself with excitement and then I know I'm going to forget every cable charger every bit of sunscreen I'm going to wear the wrong shoes but frankly this year I don't care I'll send you my checklist after this Thank we're going to have to leave it there uh, Rob Cox and Christopher we have a lovely uh, Swiss day uh, also to my colleagues here uh, Desiree Bandley uh, as as well uh, and I want to say thank you to Simon Brookback in London of course Emma Nelson uh, Christoph Amund uh, of course in Berlin and also our very very, very own Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Uh, today's show was looked after by uh, Nora Hall as well on the audio front. I'm Tyler Brule here in Zurich, Monocle on Sunday's back next week. I'm in the Baltic. Between then, have a very good afternoon. Goodbye.